Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Experience the difference. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Bishop Heather Shea of the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Here with my co-host for Open Heart Conversations, Reverend Dr. Jose Roman. On today's episode, we will explore the teaching of the Sufi tradition and practice with our special guest, Mohammed Iklis. Thank you for joining. Mohammed, welcome to Open Heart Conversations. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you both. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And I'm going to begin with a very simple question, Mohammed. And that is, in your own words, mm -hmm. what is Sufism? Uh, Sufism is the path of surrender, um, and it's surrendering, <clears throat> excuse me, it's surrendering to ultimate reality, God, um, whatever name you put on that. It's the um, dissolving of the limited self, of the dominance of the emotional um, and mental aspects of ourselves, the physical aspects, and um, um, submerging into reality as deeply as possible. And, and what is the relationship of Sufism to the Islamic faith? You know, that's a very good question, and uh, there's often a lot of confusion about that relationship. Um, there are some Suf and I should mention um, when talking about Sufism, something a lot of people aren't aware of. Um, there isn't like the Pope of Sufism that all Sufis are under. Um, the Sufi orders are more like the Protestant Church. There's you know hundreds of denominations, let's say, and the similarities far outweigh the differences. But in certain Sufi orders. Um, it's said that um, Sufism has always existed even before Islam. And I understand the essence of that, but I think it can be a little confusing. I think humanity has always had the spiritual path of return. Um, probably prehistoric times, cultures we don't know anything about. There was some type of a mystical path or a journey. Um, but these paths, that same essential um, primordial path, will um, express itself through the flavor and color and tradition of a geographic area, um, the dominant religion in the area, whatever. So Sufism is the mystical path of return um, as expressed through the Islamic tradition. Um, in a certain sense, Sufism and Islam are inseparable. It would be like saying um, that the Kabbalah exists before Judaism. Um, the mystical path existed, and ultimately it's all the same mystical path. 
Um, but the flowers grow differently in different gardens, but they all grow in the same soil. So I would say that Sufism and Islam are inseparable in the sense that if you go deeply into what Islam is about, it starts sounding very Sufi and vice versa. Um, but in our modern age, I, I think there are many people who um, are so drawn to spirituality but have a questionable um, feeling or relationship with religion so that, um, you know, the sort of spiritual but not religious idea that many people are comfortable with, um, I think often people look at not just Sufism but a lot of mystical traditions and they want the mysticism but they don't know how to relate to the religious tradition that it might have emerged from. Um, so I think it kind of amplifies this um, separation that isn't really there ultimately, if, if that makes sense. That makes sense. And could you say a, a little bit more, I'd like you to elaborate, um, this, I, I, this idea of, you know, mystical path, which mm. sounds, you know, woo, uh, <laughs> So what's a yeah? So what's a mystical path? Yep. Um, you know, and how do I get? Or say a little bit, say a little bit more, because you were going going that way, and and I I do also like for for our particular audience, um, and this goes out you know, around the world to to really understand what does that mean to to me? Who this is the first time I've you know ever been exposed to this. So so what it what is a, a, a mystical path and. You know, do you have to be born into it, or how, do, how does one develop it? Or anyway, say a little bit more about sure. the first person hearing about this. What, what does that okay. mean? Yeah, you know, when 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 I was younger and I first heard people talking about mysticism, I always imagined you know um, people with crystal balls and all kinds of weird stuff. It's you know, when in in Western culture, when you hear the words occult or mysticism or things like that, you know, when as an example, when I first became interested in spirituality, um, God, religion, whatever, um, I was living in Boulder, Colorado when I really kind of felt that passion. And, uh, you know, Boulder's a bit of a, a spiritual petting zoo in a sense. Um, you know, and I mean, in, in the early 80s in Boulder, um, you know, you could have a Tibetan Lama one day and someone channeling aliens the next day. I mean, it was, and, and I found that the words spiritual and psychic and mystical were almost interchangeable. And it soon started becoming really clear to me that um, the definition of the words um, meant different things to different people. To me, mystical is just one way of describing um, becoming deeply human, becoming deeper into the experience of a being a human being and um, removing the perceptual limitations of our human experience and um, experientially approaching a vaster concept of reality. Um, so it's not about phenomena or um, um, psychism or any of those things. It's, it's literally um, treading the mystical path, which is um, the journey towards reality itself. Um, 
so when you think of, let's say, you know, the, the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, that type of thing, um, you know, they, they weren't doing fortune telling and reading auras and things like that. Um, they were um, seriously trying to understand the essence of God and trying to become lost in that. So that to me is the mystical path. Okay, that sounds like how, how does it relate, and I have a follow up question, but how does it relate to you know, people that use the term consciousness or connecting to consciousness? How would you? So in, in what way are we talking about consciousness? Um, just to make sure I understand the question. You know, that, that you're, you're going into, let's say, um, another realm of consciousness, so it really is much more of an exploration of, of spirit. Okay, I see what you're saying, yes. You know, the, the idea is that, you know, ultimately um, is is uh, Sheikh Noor, one of our great teachers, Lex Hickson, um, once said, um, you know, there was a time when everyone talked about reality as being energy, but it's really consciousness, is what he would say, that ultimately um, all that exists is consciousness, and its ultimate reality or that consciousness is something transcendent of the mental function of of the you know we we think of consciousness as i'm awake i'm alert um i have a cognizant experience of the world around me but um in a certain sense that's limited it's what in sufism will refer to as the limited self which is not a negative view of the self but the awareness that um my physical needs and desires my emotional life my intellect all these things are um, part of that ultimate consciousness, but they're not the complete ultimate consciousness. And that um, when exploring consciousness on a mystical path, it is trying to transcend the filter of our own perceptual and cognitive limitations of reality and experiencing what is. Um, so in a sense, that that to me is is the consciousness I'm I'm referring to as far as mysticism. Thank you. That actually is very clear to me. So I hope that our audience can can, can understand that because it's a very important key concept and it's very helpful. Uh, one more thing that could probably be not just a, a, an open heart conversation, but probably a series for years. Could you talk a little bit about Rumi? In sure. Sure. Rumi is um, you know the. The popularity of Rumi is remarkable. Um, I know how how popular, and there's such wonderful interpretations and translations. And it seemed that you know, for a few years, almost everybody had to have their book of Rumi out, you know, and all that. Um, Rumi, I mean, when you read Rumi, you understand Rumi. It's it's Rumi had a remark. Well. I'll give you a little background about Rumi, but what I think appeals to so many people about Rumi is um, few have come as close as Rumi to expressing the inexpressible with language. Um, you know, there's one line I remember um, that language is a tailor shop where nothing fits. <laughs> you know, that idea of so beautifully bringing these things forward um, what many people that, you know, read Rumi and fall in love with Rumi are not aware of is he was a great Islamic scholar of his time, a very highly respected teacher. His father was as well. 
And what happened with Rumi was he had this brilliant spiritual and religious intellect, and then he met the man who became um, his mystical guide, Shems Tabriz. And um, this was... Um, this was an explosion of love and insight and revelation, I believe, for both of them. And it, it, um, it, it, in a certain sense, it freed Rumi from, from the intellect in a certain way and plunged him into the, into the deep ecstatic experience of reality. Um, this isn't to say that there's anything wrong with that intellectual approach. There's, um, different directions people sometimes go in on the Sufi path, but two strong ones are, you know, the path of knowledge, uh, you know, the, the, you know, intense study of um, philosophy and concepts and scripture. And the other doesn't necessarily exclude that, um, but is more focused on the direct experience, you know, more on the heart experience. They're both completely valid um, Rumi was someone that started on one, never lost it, but got completely lost in the other um, as well. Um, and the, the um, spiritual presence that comes with someone that makes that level of real, realization um, radiates uh, so strongly so Rumi is really one of the central figures in, in Sufism, um, one of the most highly respected um, um, mystics in the tradition, and um, probably the most popular, the, the order that uh, springs from Rumi are the Mevlevis, you know, who in the West people often refer to as the whirling dervishes. Um, you know, so there is a branch that streams directly from Rumi, but I would say all the Sufi orders carry Rumi as well. Um, but, um, you know, he's sort of indescribable in that way. <laughs> Thank you. Muhammad was Rumi the first Sufi? No, no. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on the history. Uh, it's not my strong point, but... Um, we believe that Sufism started with the earliest days of Muhammad and the revelation that um, even at that time, there were some of the companions of the Prophet, the early Muslims, who um, were going in that mystical direction, where, you know, um, that with every religion, there's the levels of the religious law and the guidelines for proper living and proper conduct and then there are the people who have always felt, well, and then where do we go from there? Um, which were, are always the mystics in any tradition. And, um, you know, even from the earliest days of the religion, there were those who um, wanted that and were exploring that. And, and that was taught to them. Um, we often refer to uh, Hazreti Ali, you know, Ali, um, as, as the father of the Sufi orders, because it's believed spiritually, um, he was, um, let's say, um, tasked with that branch of the religious expression. Um, 
so, but, but since the earliest times of the religion, there have been those mystics and mystics from other traditions would sometimes come to learn from, from the early Islamic community as well. Um, so Sufism started back then, but then from what I understand, um, and again, this is not my field of expertise, but in the earlier days of Islam and Sufism, it was a little more like the desert fathers and mothers in Christianity. It wasn't um, as organized or codified where there might be a person, a man or a woman who emerged as carrying that light and knowledge and a group of people would gather around them and learn from them. And over time, it started becoming more formalized and most of the Sufi orders, when you trace the family trees, it goes back to um, that branch being one particular saint who started in another lineage that branched off from another lineage. But they all go back to, to Muhammad, um, to the angel Jibril, Gabriel, who brought the, you know, was the messenger for God and back to God. So the, the line is always straight back to the source. But... Um, the branches vary considerably. Now, Mohammed, it's my understanding that many Sufis have um, someone called a shaykha, mm -hmm. a teacher, mm -hmm. uh, that is central, if you will, to uh, their, their sense of community and practice. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to us what exactly is a shaykha and what is the nature of that relationship and its importance to the Sufi practice and Sufi life? Thank you so much. That's, I love that question. It's, it's the core. And um, the sheikh is both, let's say, in the, in the tangible experience, it's a person, but it's also a principle. Um, the sheikh is... I'm going to answer this. The sheikh is someone who's traveled the path and carries the completion of the path and expresses the completion of the path. So they're a, a living and tangible example of what the path is and how to be. Um, there's someone to model yourself after, um, both in, in the obvious tangible ways of conduct and behavior and manner, um, but also of uh, spiritual attunement and expression. Um, they're also a mirror. Um, for, the, for the dervish. Um, when I first got involved with this um, in the early days, someone said, so what does this sheikh do? And what just came out of my mouth was, um, they see who you truly are, and over time you start getting it a little bit. Um, you know, it's like looking in a mirror, and you see the things about yourself that make you happy, and you see the things about yourself you'd rather not know. Um, and that you need to work on. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, analogies of uh, the dervishes are grapes and the shake is the vine, you know, things like that. But um, in a certain sense, the shake is, is performing this important spiritual function of um, helping bring clarity and truth in the proper direction to those that are traveling the Sufi path. Um, without a sheikh, you're depending on your own resources. And it's not that 
following a sheikh means you give up um, your own decision making and responsibility for your life or anything like that or your your actions but the idea that um, when you're trying to sort through your own personal limitations that keep you from having as clear a perspective as reality as you can you're only going to be as capable as your own limited being lets you (laughs) so having someone for whom you have that love and trust who could be a touchstone during the journey is remarkably helpful um uh to have someone well just to give you an example our our current leader sheikh afaria al-jarahi in new york um, many years ago, we were talking on the phone, and she said, Muhammad Iqbal, you know, I've noticed something about you I think you need to work on. And she explained it to me. And I'd known her well enough and love her enough and trust her enough where I said, you know, I'm not saying I disagree with you, but I don't see it, but I'll keep it in mind. And several weeks later, I was in a situation, and it was, bingo, <laughs> there it is. And I might not have noticed it, or it might have taken far longer for me to notice that without getting that feedback from someone I respect, and then being able to take responsibility for something in myself I wanted to change. Um, They also um, carry, well, all practitioners, everyone ultimately, everyone in the universe carries the spiritual transmission, but the sheikh um, performs a function of um, being a transmitter of of the spiritual presence of the Sufi order as well. Um, um, my my role is I'm a representative of the sheikh, so I give initiations, I lead the ceremonies we do, and you know all that stuff. But the way I often describe it is, without the sheikh, it would be like turning on a lamp that isn't plugged into the wall. You know, you could you could do the ceremonies, you could make the intentions, but it's the spiritual transmission of the lineage and ultimately coming from God that is empowering everything we do. And, um, you know, if you take anything out of that circuit, I mean, ultimately, of course, God is everywhere all the time, so it's not like it only goes through the shake, and if you're not with the shake, you don't get it, or it's not like that. But within the tradition, um, it's kind of like if you're flowing down a certain stream and you put a dam in it anywhere, or, you know, you divert it, the water isn't going to keep flowing from that point down. And the shake is really the... Um, the um, anchor point for that presence within the community. But you you used uh, a word earlier. You used the word dervish. Mm-hmm. What exactly is a dervish? A dervish is a student or a practitioner of Sufism. Um, ultimately, the sheikh is a dervish. Um, it's someone who is turned towards Allah, God, on the path of Sufism, um, a lot of the early meaning of the word, um, you know, talks about, you know, the idea of spiritual poverty, that, um, you know, you basically realize that um, your entire sustenance and wealth, um, including your actual being, comes from God, and that you have nothing. 
and that you surrender to God in order to be and to become. Um, you know, in, in the early days of Sufi orders, um, you know, you would hear often about, you know, the poor wandering dervishes and beggars, um, you know, just like in, in some other mystical traditions of other religions, the idea of becoming completely dependent on God is um, detaching completely from the world um, in a certain sense. So, you know, God will take care of me. I'll, I'll you know, the, the community will give me alms so I won't starve. And if I do starve, it's God's will. You know, it was a very um, strong concept. Um, in, in relatively contemporary Sufism, um, the idea is to be fully in the world because if all there is is consciousness or all there is is God, um, if you detach from any level of experience, you're alienating a certain experience of God. Um, if I see the physical world is separate from God, I'm creating a duality that we don't believe exists. Um, so having a job, having a family, all the normal things of life um, are other ways of experiencing the divine, but we realize that they all come from God. That that um, and that they're all um, you know there's there's a line in the Quran whichever way I turn I see God's face and um, this is one of the things that with Rumi and the Mevlevis with the turning is you know you're you're in that meditative state of whirling and when people go well why don't you get dizzy it's because you're completely focused on God and the the external world is not your focus at that point. Um, so it's a very good metaphor for um, that way of being. I mean, here we are having this wonderful conversation and, you know, on a certain level, we, you know, there were emails and an organization and us and we made this decision and there's technology, but it's all fueled by the divine presence, you know, that all of this is happening and the mechanics. I, I used to wonder when I first became interested in spirituality and religion, um, a friend of mine said I, I had, at the time I had a very Newtonian physics view of spirituality. I wanted to understand what the gears looked like and how they fit together and how did all these things happen. And, and then years later he said, yeah, you've gone to Einstein now, it's all light. <laughs> I'm Bishop Heather Shea of the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. We'll return in a minute. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. We now return to our open heart conversation on Sufism, the mystical expression of the Islamic faith. On a certain level, we made a decision, consciously or unconsciously, and we're responsible but ultimately, everything we do is animated by the divine. You know, there, there's no escaping it. And um, I think over time, we just become more comfortable swimming downstream instead of upstream against the current. Now, when you're going, is it going in that direction? I know, Jose, you wanted to look at this a little bit more, but could you talk about the principles? Oh, uh, I think you had them here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Certainly. Um, what do you... Yeah, I see the principles. Yeah, these are all, you know, some of the, uh, 
not necessarily in our Sufi order in this order, but they're they're pretty universal um, principles that you've got here. Um, repentance is a is a real important one. Um, you know, the Tawbah, turning, turning back to God. It's when we realize um, our limitations and our mistakes, and we start deeply understanding that we went in the wrong direction. And it isn't, you know, punish yourself, beat yourself up, feel terrible, but it's to understand, okay, because of my limitations or my damage or my pain or my conditioning, I did things that were wrong. I want to make amends if possible. Um, and I want to try my best not to go in that direction again. The sincerity, um, you know, it was interesting that that term ikhlas, when I was given the name ikhlas, um, it, uh, you know, it means sincerity. And I was like, well, that's an interesting name. Um, but sincerity it could be looked at in a number of ways. It's, it's basically being um, committed and um, pursuant of the real and the true. So you're, you're willing to be honest with yourself and others um, is, is basically, you know, what that is about, that you're willing to take off the mask that we present to the world as much as possible. Um, and and that your um, draw to to reality is is sincere. Um, we often say that you know we might have the experience of deciding to know God, but really that's just our reaction to God calling us back. <laughs> that you know we we feel that draw, and we think that we've made a decision, but if anything, we're responding. So when we start feeling that call back to sincerely turn towards it and, and go in that direction, um, the remembrance, the zikr, is that we've basically, um, we've basically become conditioned to not remember the divine nature of reality. Um, I mean, the world is constantly pulling us out of that state. So the zikr takes various forms. Uh, there's the communal zikr, what we talked about earlier, where people get together and do the practice as a group. There's uh, zikr practices people do silently um, or, or at home when they study on our path. Um, there's also just the zikr of awareness, of constantly being aware that um, ultimate reality is all that exists in one way or another. You know, if someone cuts you off in traffic and you're ready to yell at them and then you think, well, ultimate reality just cut off ultimate reality, um, you might have a different perspective and suddenly, oh, maybe they're in, the, in a hurry, maybe they're having a bad day, you know, that idea. Um, and then last, love. Um, when Sufis are always talking about love. And um, I had a hard time when I first got interested in spirituality with the everything is love and love everyone. And, you know, because my concept of love was very limited. My concept of love was an emotional experience. And 
I think that ultimately the love and the divine presence are inseparable, but it's a love that is so transcendent of um, our emotional or mental processing that, um, as, as one of our great teachers said, um, you can't describe the taste of honey to someone who hasn't tasted it. You could only give them a taste. Um, when you start realizing that even the difficult things we face are just this incredible act of love that um, we may not have asked for or wanted. Like I often say, everything is a gift from God, but sometimes you wish you had the receipt so you could exchange it, you know, because it, it doesn't mean you'll like it. But um, you just start realizing that there is nothing that is not love. Um, but it doesn't mean it's always the warm and fuzzy thing we associate with love. You know, the, the classic metaphors, you know, when the mother has to yell at a child because it's about to do something dangerous. Mother's angry, yells, and the child starts crying. What an incredible act of love um, to protect your child like that. Um, reality works that way sometimes. So, Mohammed. Tell us a little bit about the place of scripture uh, in Sufi practice. Sure. Scripture, like in most, you know, uh, religious mystical traditions is very important. Uh, you know, in Islam, Sufism, the primary scripture is the Quran. And Sheikh Noor used to say how in any spiritual tradition, but here we're talking about Sufism, um, the study of scripture is often considered the most basic practice. You know, someone becomes interested in Christianity, they start reading the Bible, that type of thing, or they become interested in Islam and they read the Quran. But he said, it's also one of the most advanced practices that needs impeccable guidance because it is so easy to misunderstand the meaning of scripture. Um, when you, you know, Religious scripture is trying to take concepts that transcend the intellect and put them into words. And as soon as it's written down, um, it starts becoming concrete in, 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 in uh, many expressions. Isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it means that you can misunderstand things and it could go in a very distorted direction from where you started. So, um, basically, in Sufism, the, the Quran, you know, the, the book you could hold in your hands and read, is the essential scripture, but your sheikh is a living expression of that scripture. So, um, you have someone that is expressing the concepts um, in their actions and their being, and who also could explain it and interpret it. Um, in line with the spiritual view and cosmology of, of that particular group. So, the, again, you know, the scripture is the ultimate authority, but it's the living expression of the scripture that is really the ultimate authority. Um, you know, this is something many religious communities kind of wrestle with. You take um, a tradition that began in a certain culture in a certain place at a certain time, and as it travels through time and travels through the world, um, 
the literal interpretation of things could be very different and it starts becoming more abstract. So when you have someone you can trust who expresses it as a living presence, um, it becomes more fluid. So it doesn't mean... Um, so is that, is, that then the, the, uh, is that then part of the role of the shaker? Very much so. More of a living expression of, of scripture. Scripture becomes, remains important. Yes. It is the shaker who then becomes the living expression. Uh, right. Of that scripture. Right. And ultimately all the dervishes as well. Right. But ultimately, but but the idea though is um <clears throat> you know, if you you know the reading the Quran um without the proper training is a lot like reading the old testament without the proper training. It's kinda it gets kind of heavy sometimes. <laughs> so it's very helpful to have someone where you could go, show me the love in this. You know, I'm trying to find the love in this passage. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've been very lucky to have teachers who could always show me that. Huh? Um, you know, to, to be able to say, oh, here's, here's the love in it. Or, well, the way you're looking at it, I could see why you would think that. But, you know, here's what it's really about. And, of course, any interpretation is still an interpretation. Right. If, if, if you could have multiple opinions, there's something transcendent of all those opinions. So, um, again, like I was talking about trying not to have a concept of God, it's always um, where the, the scripture should be a map, but not the goal. Right. Uh, it's a very valuable map, but, but you don't want to confuse it for the, the goal of the journey. Right, that makes complete sense. Let me ask you a, um, a somewhat maybe simpler question, which is, are there any holidays that are of particular importance to the Sufi tradition? Um, you know, all the, 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 the major Islamic holidays, you know, Ramadan, you know, the month of fasting is a big one. Um, there are some that are observed by Sufis that, you know, may or may not be observed by some other uh, Muslim communities like the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, um, you know, there there are, let's say, the Sufi equivalents of saints' days, like in the Catholic Church, where, you know, the birth or the passing of a great saint or a great teacher, let's say, like, you know, Rumi's, um, like with Rumi, we, f we refer to his death as his wedding night. You know, when he was totally freed from the limitations of any veil of separation just by being physically manifest. Um, so, you know, often the passing of uh, a great saint um, is seen as a time of um, celebrating their complete um, merging with the divine. And in a certain sense that that presence is a little closer at that moment. So, yeah, there, there are certainly holy days that, that we observe. Um. We, you've done such a magnificent job, Mohammed, of walking us through um, this remarkable um, and very ancient wisdom tradition. And it's really raised one question in my mind, which is, what inspired you to become a Sufi? You know, it's a, it's a good question. And the, the very easy short answer was destiny. 
I don't think I had a choice. Um, sometimes I like to joke, well, God has a sense of humor, so let's take a Jewish kid from Brooklyn and, you know, do this with him. But, um, but um, in essence, when I, I was always, even when I look at my childhood, I think I had a bent towards the mystical. I don't think I understood it. And for various reasons, as a teenager, I just sort of tried to, I don't want anything to do with that. And then in my 20s, it kind of exploded. I, I really want, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to know, but I knew there was more and I wanted to know it. And I went to lectures by different spiritual teachers. I read tons of books. Um, and every now and then I would come across a book by some long dead Sufi master. And this stuff would just resonate with me. It, it just spoke to me in a very direct way. Yet um, I had no idea how to approach it outwardly. Um, I, I was very ignorant about Islam, you know, coming from a, even a secular Jewish family and stuff, you know, it was, you know, the Muslims are the ones that don't like us. You know, this, it, you know, I, I didn't really know much about it. Um, then um, <clears throat> after a few years, I came across a book by um, Hazrat Nayak Khan, who, as far as anyone knows, was the first person to bring Sufism to the United States in the very early 1900s. And I read his books and I just felt like there was some kind of heart connection with this guy who died long before I was born. And I didn't know what to do with it. And that love just kept growing. And it was an interesting experience. And I started feeling like there's something going on here. Um, I didn't know there were Sufis in North America. I didn't know this existed. It was pre-internet, you know, so um, I had no idea. And then I found out that there were Sufi teachers living and in the United States. And I met a few and got to see them. Um, but it wasn't until I came in touch with Sheikh Noor al-Jarahi, our current Sheikh Afariha's uh, predecessor, that um, it was an instant realization that this is my teacher, this is my guide. Um, and in a certain sense, though, I was drawn towards Sufism, to be honest, um, it was the container that he was teaching within. And the draw to him was so overwhelming. It wasn't as much um, should I connect and associate with this guy as, well, here I am, I'm in the deep end of the pool. Um, I hope this is okay. <laughs> you know, it, it was kind of overwhelming and not always comfortable to feel that strong a draw. Um, and um, when someone once said to me, um, well, do you think you'll be on this path forever? I go, I, I don't know about forever. It's been a, it's been a 30-year experiment so far, and I haven't gone anywhere. <laughs> but um, I, I think it was more that um, it found me, um, in a sense. And, you know, there's that the classic thing, when you take one step towards God, God takes 10 towards you. Um, and I, I just believe it was very much that case. Um, I think what is interesting to me is um, 
I, I mentioned earlier, I came from a secular Jewish family, and like a lot of secular Jewish families, I went to Hebrew school so I could have a bar mitzvah, and that was pretty much the end of religion. And as I started learning about Sufism and the mysticism, it gave me such a deeper appreciation for Judaism because I remember in Hebrew school asking, why do you kiss the mezuzah when you walk through a room? Or why do you say this prayer when you wash your hands? And the answer was, God wants you to. And like even at 11, that didn't float, you know. Um, as I studied Sufism, it suddenly becomes you associate remembering God with every action you do. <laughs> you know, no one explained that. And I mentioned that to an Orthodox Jewish friend once, and he said, well, you know, the people that were teaching you might not have known that. They might not have been oriented in that way. Um, so I, I, I feel in no way is Sufism superior to any other choice I, may, I could have made, but because of the path and the lineage and... Um, um, the expression of um, my teacher and my attraction to Sufism, that's just the path I took. And, and maybe you can answer these questions together. Um, I, I, one of my girlfriends, uh, I had seen her for a while, and she's, you know, all of a sudden she said, now I'm Sufi. And I was like, huh? And so how, uh, let's say, how does one say, this sounds very interesting. How do I, be, how do, how do I become, how do I get on the path? Mm -hmm. And then also for somebody who just is listening to the show or watching the show and goes, I would just like to learn more. Sure. You know, I'm very happy. I'm very Catholic, Jewish, Zoroastrian, mm -hmm. you know, whatever I am. And I'm very good there. But I think it's very interesting. I'd like to learn more. So sure. how do I become one? Is that, you know, is that possible? Mm -hmm. And then um, if I just want to learn more, where do I go? Sure. Great question. You know, I, um, I think if I could answer them in the reverse order, because I think okay. one will lead to the other. Um, you know, learning about Sufism is certainly the start. And um, <clears throat> like these days, um, with the Internet, it could be even more confusing because, you know, if you Google Sufi, you'll get so much information and you'll get many different perspectives. So it can be confusing navigating what's there. Um, so uh, there's a couple of books I always recommend if people are interested just to get a general overview. And um, I, could, I could read them off now or I could email it to you, whichever you prefer, if you want me to mention them in the... Why don't you mention it for the sure. people who are on the radio and they just, if they give sure. us a few, that they could go, oh, let me remember that. Or they sure. Sure. Um, you know, one is called Love is the Wine uh, by Sheikh Muzaffar um, Ozak Al-Jarahi. I believe they use that full name. Uh, Sheikh Muzaffar was my current Sheikh and my previous Sheikh's Sheikh. He's the one that brought our lineage to the United States. And what's wonderful about the book Love is the Wine is its transcripts of talks he gave to psychology students in the United States who didn't necessarily have a background in Sufism or Islam. So it's very conversational, very accessible. You don't um, run into a lot of terminology you don't understand and presents the core concepts of Sufism in a 
very clear and understandable way. Um, that's one book. Um, another is anything by the man I mentioned earlier, Hazrat Inayat Khan. There are dozens of books by him. Um, most of them are transcripts of talks he gave in the early 1900s. But a part of Hazrat Nayat Khan's mission, he was a, a Sufi master from India, and his sheikh, on his, his sheikh while on his deathbed said, bring this to the West. So he went to the West and started teaching Sufism. So he had this mastery of being able to express the concepts of Sufism to Westerners who at that time, unless they were, you know, immigrants or small communities, you know, the average person in the United States knew nothing about Islam. Um, so he had a beautiful way of expressing the concepts um, that were extremely accessible to Westerners without a background in the subject. Um, so I'd recommend anything um, by him. Um, as far as becoming a Sufi, once you start feeling drawn to it, um, I always recommend to people, you know, that's when you could go online or find Sufi orders or get in touch, send an email, um, go to their ceremonies, learn about them and find out if you feel comfortable there. Um, you know, there, there are times, um, you know, you know, immediately, like, you know, it's sort of like you meet someone and go, I think I'm in love with this person. But it's usually good to get to know them before you marry them, <laughs> you know, find out what you're getting into. Um, so, you know, again, you could visit uh, different Sufi teachers, different Sufi groups, read about the different Sufi groups you come across and um, um, just find out where you belong. Different Sufi orders, some are more accessible than others. Um, um, in ours, uh, Sheikh Afaria was interviewed once on the radio, and um, she was asked, what are the requirements to be a part of your community? And she said, the requirement to be a part of our community is the desire to be a part of our community. <laughs> so anyone is welcome. You don't have to become initiated. You know, everyone is welcome to come. Um, some orders, um, when I say they're more secretive, I don't mean that in they're trying to withhold anything, but um, one way of looking at spiritual practice is if someone comes to one of our Sufi ceremonies, they're going to be affected by it. Um, inshallah, they'll be affected by it. One way to look at it is, you know, um, God knows how to do God's job really well. They'll get what they need. Another way of looking at it is um, we don't want someone to be unprepared for what they might receive. So one group might go, well, you can't come to these ceremonies until you've done this or that. Another group might be everyone's welcome. So you'll run into those differences. Um, but, you know, just explore and, and find out where you feel comfortable. Um, and if it, and if it, um, you know, again, like I said, my own personal touchstone with any group, or are they inclusive or exclusive? Um, 
for me, if if a religious path says all there is is God and everything is one, but we have a problem with these people for a particular reason, then I kind of go, well, there's a limitation there. Um, but for other people, that works because it gives them a definition of how the map works in a different way. So just see where your heart is drawn, you know, where your questions are answered, where you feel comfortable. Thank you. Well, Mohammed, thank you so very, very much, by the way. And you've given us a wonderful beginning. Oh, and I thank you so much. We're so grateful to you uh, and grateful to your community for uh, empowering you to come here and share um, so much with us. Uh, Thank you. It's been a phenomenal conversation. You've been listening to our series, Open Heart Conversations, offering dialogues from the world's religions and spiritual traditions, recorded here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Please visit us in Manhattan or online at upspiritualarts.org. Until next time. You've been listening to our series, Open Heart Conversations, offering dialogues from the world's religions and spiritual traditions, recorded here at the United Palace of Spiritual Arts. Please visit us in Manhattan or online at upspiritualarts.org. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry, where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.